Good morning, church family. You may be seated. It's so good to be here with you today. As you know, for about the past decade, we've been studying the minor prophets. Uh, we're going to stay in the prophets this morning. We're going to take a break from the minors, however, and we're going to dip into the majors. We're going to look at a passage of Isaiah. Go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 6. This is his call to ministry. <clears throat> this is arguably one of the most well-known passages in Isaiah's prophecy, and rightfully so. It's a, it's a dramatic testimony of where Isaiah's gaze is lifted above and beyond his present circumstances, his physical surroundings. And he catches a vision of God, which immediately, completely, and permanently changes his life. And then the Holy Spirit causes him to write it down so that you and I could be changed too. If you learn anything from this passage, it's this. Brothers and sisters, a right and high view of God, a right and high view of God is everything. Without it, we have nothing. But with it, we have everything we need for our lives and the ministry that God calls every single one of us to. Okay, so let us read it together. In Isaiah chapter 6, we'll be starting at verse 1. Hear the word of God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful, I'm so grateful, that you've given us another Lord's Day. Another Sunday where we can gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ as your family to praise you and to worship you together. We pray that you would send your spirit down upon us, that you would open up the, um, our hearts and our minds and our eyes, that we might see the beauty and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do a mighty work in our lives, O oh God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, this past week, um, I watched... The documentary, it's kind of an older documentary called Beyond the Gates of Splendor. It's kind of a, a sequel to Elizabeth Elliot's book, Through the Gates of Splendor. 
And about a decade ago, they came out with a movie called The End of the Spear. It's pretty intense. If you've not seen those movies or that documentary or read that book, it's about five missionary men. Five missionaries, Jim Elliott, Nate, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Pete Fleming, and Roger Udarian, all of whom died for Christ. They were killed by the very same people they were evangelizing, the Wadani tribe in Ecuador. Now, a couple of things to know about these missionary men. Um, they were uh, graduates from Wheaton College. They were young. They were energetic. They had their life before them, highly intelligent. And most of them were recently married. All of them, including their wives, had it deep in their hearts, had a desire given to them from the Lord to reach not only the people in Ecuador, but this specific tribe, the Wadani people. Now, a couple of things to know about them. Uh, they were the very essence of a Stone Age tribe, even back in the 1950s. They were completely isolated out in the jungle. Everybody else from Ecuador never messed with them. Because while they were a Stone Age tribe and knew very little, there was one thing they were very, very good at. They were good at killing. In fact, the children in this tribe grew up with the motto, spear and live or be speared and die. Children. Anthropologists did a study five decades prior to these missionaries arriving in Ecuador. Six out of every ten deaths in this tribe were by homicide by the end of the spear. Everybody knew that reputation. Those missionaries and their families and their wives knew that reputation, but still they had it in their hearts to go. To love these people, to serve these people, and of course to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with them. Nevertheless, on January 8th, 1956, as those five men got off their little prop plane, every single one of them was speared and thrown into the river. It's a tragic story. It's an old story. I'm sure all of you have heard that. But if you know the full story, you also know it's an amazing story. I probably would have left after that happened. But not those families, not those women, those wives, those mothers. They stayed. In fact, Elizabeth Elliot and Rachel Saint moved their families into the village of that very same tribe. They lived there for two years. And they kept on serving, and they kept on loving, and they kept on sharing with these people the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to the point of where every single person in this tribe, including the war party that came after their husbands, repented and came to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those same anthropologists I mentioned earlier have, have noted that after this ministry of not only those men, but specifically Elizabeth Elliot and Rachel Saint, after that ministry, after a couple of years, they noticed the homicide rate dropped by more than 90%. Why? Because the people in that tribe were no longer living by the spear. They were living by the word of God. And what's really incredible is that after, you know, they moved away, they came back to the States as they got older, one of Rachel Saint's daughters, I believe her name was Jenny Saint, came to faith as an adult. And she wanted to be baptized. But she wanted to be baptized by members of her family, as she called them. So she got on a plane, went back to Ecuador, found this now Christianized jungle, found one of the Christian elders in that village, the chief of that former war party. And he baptized her in the very same river that her dad died. In case you're wondering, brothers and sisters, the gospel of Jesus Christ does 
amazing things. What in the world happened in that jungle? What was going through the mind and the calculation of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot and all those other people? What happened? I'll tell you what happened. The amazing gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ came to bear in that village because it was brought by men and women who very well knew the challenges and the dangers and the risks, but they had such a high and right view of God, they were compelled to go anyway. This is what Jim said before he died. He says, surely those who know the great passionate heart of Jehovah must deny their own loves to share in the expression of his. I must go, is what he wrote. Now, friends, don't misunderstand me. We're not Isaiah. We're not Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. We're not their friends. Most of us will not be called to go overseas unless Andy Cheely gets a hold of you. Okay, so watch out for that. But most of us won't be called to go over there. But if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you claim his name, we're all called to go somewhere. Called to go across the living room to that knucklehead relative of yours called to go across the street to the neighbor you've been avoiding because you don't want to have this gospel conversation. Called to go across town to those people that you don't have a whole lot in common with to tangibly love them in material, physical ways. People who might even count you as their enemy. doesn't matter. We're called to love our enemies. And we're called to go to share the name that is above every name. The reality is sometimes, and I, I, I fall in this trap of thinking too, but most of us, I think, fall into the, the idea of thinking that that is an appendage to the Christian life. But the reality is it is part and parcel of being a Christian. In Christ, we are sent ones. It is the basic foundation of who we are. A bunch of us as pastors went to um, the EPC General Assembly. David was there. I was there. A couple other pastors and elders. And we did a whole lot of stuff, and we learned a whole lot of things, and we had fellowship with other pastors around the world, or around the nation, really. Actually, world. There were other pastors from other countries there. And the primary thing we were doing is that we were reminding ourselves that this is just part of who we are, to get busy in the kingdom of God. So, brothers and sisters, if that is just normal, who we, what's going to compel us to go? What's going to compel us to move past our insecurities? I'm just going to confess to you, I have a lot of them. I don't want to go across the street to my neighbor. But what's going to move us beyond that? What's going to move us beyond our fears, get us out of our comfort zone? It's the very same thing that compelled Jim and his friends and his family. It's the very same thing that compelled Isaiah. Brothers and sisters, we need to see Jesus. We need to see Jesus because if you truly see Jesus, we cannot help but be changed and compelled to go, wherever that go is. What happened that day in the temple? What in the world did Isaiah see that day? There's at least four things that I can make head and tails of. First off, in verse 1a, we see that Isaiah saw the reality of God. This is how this whole chapter begins. In the year King Uzziah died, we'll talk more about him in just a moment, but in the year that Uzziah died, this is what he writes, and this is the key phrase for this point. I saw. Now listen, I think the reason that, uh, that Isaiah 
<laughs> was just so dumbfounded that day is because he was doing what he had done hundreds of times before. He was going to temple, right? It was Sabbath. He was going to, to worship the Lord. And just like everybody else that was going to temple that day and had been going to temple, and just like most people who go to church, he saw the very person he was not expecting to see. He saw God. He saw him. You see, Isaiah, up until this point, he knew about God. He believed the scriptures as they were given to him, the first five books of the law, the Pentateuch. He believed that he would not have been in temple that day had he not. But this day, something changed. He saw God. The Bible makes a huge deal about the Christian faith being more than belief and doctrine. It is never less than that. But it's more. It's not about just what you know. It's about knowing, knowing God, tasting and seeing. And so what happened this day when he says he saw, what we're to understand is that, is that Isaiah went from knowing about God, all of it up in his head, to actually knowing God. I saw him. He went from saying his prayers at nighttime to actually praying. You know, there's a difference there. He went from being a nominal believer to a real believer. He saw. Now, what is the significance of that? I really appreciate what Tim Keller says about it. He says, this happens all the time for us, just in normal day life. We're just minding our own business, going about our errands. But then something happens. We see something so beautiful, experience something so powerful. It just stops us in our tracks and we go slack, John. Have you ever been through something like that before? I mean, it could be, you know, just mundane stuff. I mean, say you're a huge sports fan, right? And you had a chance to see Michael Jordan or maybe LeBron James today play in person. You've seen those people play hundreds of times, but you actually saw them in person and you knew they were jumping high on the telly. But once you get there, it's like, how in the world is someone jumping this high? This level of athleticism. I mean, I was a superstar in church basketball league myself, but this is... You know, this is ridiculous. It just stops you in your tracks. You're like, I had no idea there are people out in the world this gifted. Or maybe you see something just grand. See some mountains or something. Like I said, I went to General Assembly this past week, which was in Denver. First time I've ever seen the Rockies. <laughs> John Denver was right. I mean, they're amazing. It's like 90 degrees, but still these things were so big and so tall. You just look at the top and they were snow-capped. It was amazing. Or maybe you love art. And you have those coffee table art books and you can just memorize it. But then you go to, a, to an actual museum and you see a, a Rembrandt. And you see the colors and the shading. And you've never seen something so beautiful. Or maybe you're a common guy and you had Gibsons for the first time. You just didn't know that donuts could be so delicious. <laughs> you know, there's just things that we experience in this life that just, that just change our perspective. Sometimes it might even change us totally. What if you saw God? That's what happened to Isaiah. Now, the Bible's clear. God is spirit. Okay, no one has seen God. But still, Isaiah says right here, I saw God. The Lord. So what in the world's going on? Scholars tell us that the revelation of God in the Old Testament is kind of like a silhouette. 
You know, you don't see a physical form of God. He's spirit, but it's kind of like he's behind a curtain and you can see the outline of him. You can see the, you can see the reality of him. You can see his beauty and his power and his majesty. And that's what Isaiah saw. It was no longer just head knowledge and theory. He saw the majesty and the beauty and the power and the glory of God. And if you're reading the Gospels, according to John in chapter 12 of his Gospel, what Isaiah really saw that day was a pre-incarnate vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. Before the birth, before death, before resurrection, before ascension, he saw a pre-incarnate vision of the Lord Jesus Christ enthroned in heaven, and it changed him forever like that. Brothers and sisters, the, the little takeaway point I, I want for us is that every time we come here, not to temple, but in, into, this, into this room, to this sanctuary, let us come praying for that. That we might see the Lord high and lifted up. You know, a lot of times we come in here sleepy and tired. I'm a little sleepy and tired right now, too. And sometimes if you have young kids, you come in here, you're just, your hair's all over the place. You just look like you went through a bender and, you know, you're just ready to get home. And that's okay. But don't come in here begrudgingly. Don't come here out of mere routine. Don't come here expecting normal things to happen. Come here expectantly. Come here praying. Come here desiring that all of us should see the Lord high and lifted up. Because when you do, when we do, it changes us. Isaiah saw the Lord. Now, what specifically did he see? He saw a couple of things. First off, he saw the Lord on the throne, verses 2 through 5. We may never know exactly what Isaiah saw that day, like what it actually looked like. Maybe we will. I don't know. But we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt he was not bored that day in church, right? There was lightning bolts. There was, a, there was an earthquake. <laughs> he saw all these amazing things. He was the furthest thing away from being bored in church. Why? Because, again, he saw the Lord on the throne. But while on the throne, he saw two very central attributes of God. First off, he saw the sovereignty of God. I'm sure he believed in the sovereignty of God prior to this, but this is something that he needed to experience, something that he needed to see. And I'm sure it's something that we need to experience and see as well. Go back to verse 1. It says, the year Uzziah died. We are given that little tidbit, not so that we might know the year of when this vision happened. We are given this little tidbit so that we might know the context in which Isaiah received it. Okay, he's letting us know what his world was like when this happened. That's why you have chapters 1 through 5 and then the call, because Isaiah is letting us know what the world was like, what Israel was like when God called him. So during this time period, you have King Uzziah. He, he had a very, very long reign. For the most part, he was a good king. Israel prospered in every which way that a country can prosper under his leadership. Near the tail end of it, though, to put it commonly, I mean, he got too big for his britches. He started doing things that he shouldn't be doing. He started rebelling against the Lord, right? And so he fell into pride. Now, as in most cases, as the leadership goes, so do the people. So the majority of Israel just followed his lifestyle. They fell into pride too. They were centered on themselves, focused on themselves, 
consumed with materialism, rebelling against God. So here's Isaiah. Here's the context initially. He's in a very prosperous country, right? But he is surrounded by moral and spiritual decay. But then something happens. There's another nation that rise up. And it's a dangerous nation. And they're gaining steam. And they're starting to take over other, other nearby countries. This is Assyria. And they have their eyes set on Israel. And so they're ready to come. It's in that moment, in that context, Uzziah dies. Okay, now you say, well, he's a bad king. Well, at least he's a king. Someone to, you know, muster the troops. There's these bad guys coming for us. So here's Isaiah. He's surrounded by moral and spiritual decay. Now his once prosperous nation is crumbling and these evil, evil people are about to enslave him and everybody else. He was quaking in his boots. And of course he would be. <laughs> he, was, he was fearful. Everybody would have been fearful. And you can say that he was probably hopeless. And I know a lot of us in here feel that way too as we look at the culture around us, even the greater church around us. So how comforting do you think it was for Isaiah where in spite of what he saw around him, he was reminded, he actually saw true reality that God is still on the throne. In control of all things, church, our God is on the throne. Say it with me, please. God is on the throne. Do you have any idea what that true, this is not fiction, this is true. Do you know what that means? Isaiah knew what that meant. We see it in verses two through five. A hundred years from now, when every major head of state is under the ground, our God will still be on the throne. Right now, with everybody that's in power, whatever kind of power it is, doesn't have to be politics. But whoever has power, whoever's misusing power, Whoever's plotting in vain, our God's throne is higher still. He is high and lifted up is what Isaiah records here. And on his throne, which is high and lifted up, Psalm 2, he's not worried. Do you remember Psalm 2? He laughs at those who plot in vain. Our God ain't scared of nothing. And furthermore, no matter how great the crisis is, spiritual, national, personal, whatever, our God is greater still. And Isaiah saw that from this weird image that the train of his robe fills the temple. Kind of a weird nugget to add, right? Back then, the king was greater in his greatness depending on how long his, the, the, the train on his robe was. We're not in that context, but let me ask you this. When's the last time you went to a wedding? Do you remember how long the bridal train was? What's the longest bridal train you've seen? I've seen some pretty long ones up here. I mean, this is a long runway, this slate floor. Right? But I've never seen one that's filled the sanctuary. That's what Isaiah saw. He saw the train of the Lord filling the temple. And what that told him, he knew what that meant. It meant that no matter how great the threat, how great the evil, our God is greater still. And we need to know that too. That nothing gets him confused, that nothing surprises God, that he's not worried for nothing. And if our God who formed atoms is not worried, brothers and sisters, we don't need to be worried either because he's got the entire world in his hands. He's got you in his hands and he's got me in his hands. You know what happened that day in the temple in this moment? Isaiah went from knowing about Psalm 46 to experiencing Psalm 46. 
God is our refuge and strength, sure, but God is also my refuge and strength. Personally, he is my present help in my trouble. Isaiah, be still and know that he is God. He's got it. He will be exalted in the nations and in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with me. He's with you too, but he's with me. The God of Jacob is my fortress. You know how comforting it would have been to see God in charge of all things. Sometimes we forget that. He needed to be reminded that God is sovereign. Now, the second thing that he saw with the Lord on the throne is a little bit more important for our purposes in this passage. He saw the holiness of God. That's what he also saw. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I think holiness is arguably the most neglected attribute of God in the modern church. If you ask someone to describe God, they would most certainly talk about his power, his grace, and his love, things which are central to him and important for us, surely. But you don't hear a whole lot of people talking about God's holiness. Yet, in the Bible, in his self-revelation, holiness is God's central, defining, and foundational attribute. That's how he describes himself most often. Now, what is God's holiness? It's, it's kind of hard to explain, really. I mean, it's all of his moral excellencies balled up into one. It's his perfection from every facet, every angle. It's his moral excellencies balled up into one. But beyond that, it's hard to explain, which is why I think that Isaiah received a descriptive definition that day. <laughs> Just look what is written here in verses 2 through 5. What do we see in verse 2? First off, we see these things called seraphim floating or flying over the throne of God. All right, now what are those things? The seraphim. Oddly enough, this word is not translated, okay? It's transliterated. And the reason that is is because no one knows what this word means. What are these things? And we know the root word, which means to burn. But what, what, what are these beings? If the root word means to burn, what are these things? I like how another... Uh, pastor has described it before. He says, imagine you just have these, these white-hot, nuclear-powered, created beings with all of their worship directed towards God. Because that's the only thing we know about them, that they're these white-hot, nuclear-powered, created beings with all of their energy directed towards Yahweh, praising him over and over and over. We don't know how many there are, but if you go to Revelation, we see an endless sea of these created beings, these angelic beings praising God. And what are they doing here? You'll notice that how many of them there are, they have three pairs of wings. With the first pair of wings, they're covering their feet. Now, what's that all about? This is a sign of basically humility that they, even these, these beautiful, otherworldly, created, fiery beings realize they're not worthy to be in the presence of God. And so they're covering their feet, much like Moses did on the mount where he took his sandals off. That's basically him saying, I don't deserve to be here. Now, apparently angels didn't have shoes. I don't know. <laughs> they didn't have any Nikes on. And so, so what do they do? They cover their feet with their wings. There's another set of wings that are on their back. All right, and they're flapping. And what that shows us is that they're ready to do the Lord's bidding whenever and whatever he bids. With all eagerness, without hesitation. Why? Because he is God. Of course, we're going to listen to him. He formed Adam's. 
And with the last pair, they're covering their faces. Which you just got to ask, how holy is God that these fiery, nuclear-powered beings got to cover their faces? Because that's their purpose. That's their existence to glorify and praise God. They love them, right? But here they can't stand to look at them. They're trying because that's how they know to cover their eyes. So it's kind of like we're trying to look at the sun. You just milliseconds, you look at it, then cover your eyes. That's what they're doing. They want to gaze. So how holy is God? They can't even stand to look at him. Well, they tell us. Holy, holy, holy. Just like we read in Revelation, the beginning of the service. But that's what they're saying here. Holy, holy, holy. When they say that, they're just not, they're not being repetitious, okay? They're not wasting air. They're showing us the superlative of God's holiness. It's like perfection times perfection. That's what they're demonstrating. That second holy is boosting the force of that first holy. Then the third holy is boosting the force of the first and second holy together. I mean, the worship of heaven is straining against the limitation of human language to ascribe God his proper worth. But it can't do it because God is that brilliant. Angels can't get to the end of God's holiness and beauty. Could we ever? The degree of God's goodness and power and majesty is beyond our ability to calculate. But brothers and sisters, this goodness in this beauty, in this holiness, we can see in part right now as we come to worship and praise him together, as we open up his word and put our noses in it and read it by faith, we see him there. And one day too, we have the promise that we will see the goodness and the beauty and the glory of God in the flesh as we see Jesus face to face. And as majestic and beautiful and mysterious as this vision of Isaiah is right now, is going to pale in comparison to what we are headed for, church. I can't, imagine, I can't wait to see the look on your faces when you see Jesus and all of his beauty. Can you wait for that? I can't. But nevertheless, in this moment, Isaiah needed this vision of God's holiness. And we need it too because it was like a cup of divine coffee. Isaiah, he was just kind of yawning through life. But in this moment, the oxygen of God's holiness woke up the mind of his heart. Like a divine cup of joe. And we need that too, church. That's what happened to Isaiah. He saw God in all of his splendor, in all of his holiness and majesty. And it woke up the mind of his heart. But at first, he wasn't very comfortable with it, as you can tell. All right, so this leads us to our second point. Isaiah saw the Lord on the altar, throne altar. We see this in verses 5 through 7. Now, Isaiah is kind of a peculiar prophet. We've been going through all the prophets, and most of the prophets that we've studied up to this point were poor. Um, they were social nobodies, really. I mean, God used them in powerful ways, but temporally speaking, superficially speaking, they were nobodies. Isaiah was different. Chapter 1, verse 1, he gives us the line that he is the son of Amoz. Tradition tells us that Amoz was a brother of a, a king in Judah, which meant our boy Isaiah grew up in the royal family, which meant that he was probably a pretty wealthy guy, or at least grew up in wealth. 
He was probably well-connected. He knew the right people as a, as a youngster and as an adult. He probably received the best education, the best training. He was a heck of a preacher, so he knew how to talk. He probably got training in that. He was a well-to-do person. In fact, of all of the prophets we've studied so far, Isaiah would probably fit well in our social circles. He would. He was that type of guy. He was a well-to-do person. But like most well-to-do people, I doubt very seriously that Isaiah thought much about how much he needed God. I mean, he was a religious person. He believed these things, but I doubt he woke up every day relying upon the Lord. I doubt he asked God for much other than the occasional helping hand or a nudge here or nudge there. But the moment he saw the Lord, the reality of God and all of his grandeur, all of his power and holiness, all of that mess came crumbling down. He used to think he was a self-important person, but now he has a nosebleed looking at God. (laughs) He was broken immediately. Brokenness, by the way, in this context is not a bad thing. Brokenness is a very good thing. Without brokenness, we don't get to the joy of verse 7 and verse 8. Being poor in spirit, Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, is a sign that we've actually met God. Brokenness is a good thing. But in this moment, just just notice how broken Isaiah is after he catches a glimpse of how majestic God is. The first thing that he says is, woe is me. When he says that, he's not telling us about his feelings. It kind of sounds like, oh, woe is, you know, golly gee, I feel bad about myself. That's not what's going on. A woe is a curse. And so in this moment, Isaiah He's not even waiting for God to curse him. I mean, he, oh, no, 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 curse me. God, you're that holy. I'm going to curse myself. You're so beautiful and so grand. I had no idea. I don't deserve to live just by mere sight of him. That's what Isaiah was saying. It's like he's a, an ice cream cone getting melted in the heat of July. I'm undone. That that was just fact. All right, then he says, (laughs) after he confesses that he's undone, he says something strange. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips and a people of unclean lips. I'm sure he could have confessed a lot of different things. This is a strange confession. What's he saying? I think a number of things. Uh, First off, you know, he was a preacher. He made his living by that. That's how he praised and served the Lord, praised with his mouth. That's what identified him and made him distinctive from every other person. So here, he could be saying, even the instrument that I use to praise you and serve you, God, is nothing but a filthy rag before you. It's kind of like a musician or a painter or, I don't know, a cook who need their hands. (laughs) They're like saying, these things that, that I'm so proud of, they're nothing. I'm nothing but a filthy rag before this God. I mean, he's that otherworldly. He's that majestic and that powerful and that holy. Or he could just be saying from that Matthew 12, that Matthew 12 feeling of that the unclean tongue is just a result of an unclean heart. Either way, he is saying, I am a sinner through and through. I kind of knew that beforehand, but catching a glimpse of God, I know now that I'm a sinner. And then the second thing we understand is that he makes the right claim 
that he is no better than all of those other Jews in Israel who outright rebelled against God. I'm a man of unclean lips and a people of unclean lips. It's like him saying, I know now that I'm no better than anybody else. I'm no better than those traitors. I'm no better than those pagans that are coming for us. I'm no better than the secular people. I'm no better than that political party. I'm no better than that country. I, I, I am undone. God got Isaiah to a place where he finally understood that God has everything and needs nothing and that Isaiah has nothing and needs everything. And he was broken to the core. Church, we need to be broken to the core because it's only when we're poor in spirit that we'll be ready to receive the grace of God, which is what happened next. He saw him on the altar. He saw his holiness. He saw who he was in light of God's holiness. And he thought he was about to die. He wanted to die. That's what he knew that he deserved Forgiveness was the furthest thing from his mind, but church noticed that forgiveness was on God's mind. We got the whole of biblical religion here. He saw God in his holiness. He saw God as he rightly was, and then he repented. And what do we see happen? God initiates his salvation. God in grace initiates this whole thing. He didn't even ask for it. He just knew that he was a sinner and he repented. He had a contrite heart. And God in his grace sends one of these nuclear-powered beings with tongs in his hand and a burning coal in the tong. What in the world is that all about? In the Old Testament, really in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, fire had to do with God's wrath. And so when Isaiah saw that coal coming for him, he's like, well, of course, this makes sense. I'm a sinful person in view of this majestic God. Of course he's going to give me his wrath. Of course I'm going to die. But where did that coal come from? It came from the altar. And what's the altar? In the temple, the altar, yes, had fire on it, burning coals on it, but it also had the place of sacrifice. So the altar is the place where God's wrath and his grace meet. Then God takes that grace and brings it to this repentant man and just rubs it into the place of his greatest shame. In grace, God initiates this, accomplishes this, and then announces it, which is what I want to focus on for a brief moment. Verse 7. <laughs> Verse 7. You know, Isaiah might not have known what was just happening, but God tells him in verse 7, he said, Isaiah, your sins have been atoned for. Now think about how peculiar that is with Old Testament ears, okay? Atonement, that means to pay for something. And so what he heard God say is that, Isaiah, your sins have been paid for. You were a man with unclean lips, but not now. You've been washed and clean. And Isaiah would have said, well, this is amazing, but who paid for what? I didn't see a transaction anywhere. <laughs> who paid for my sins? Now, he would have kind of get a clearer picture as you go further into his prophecy. But here he doesn't know. All he knows is, is that the creator God and all of his holiness just told him that he was a man with unclean lips, but now he's washed clean and forgiven. 
And so, of course, he rejoices, but he has no idea what's going on. But church, you and I know what's going on. Do you remember that passage in the Corinthian correspondence when Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says this, Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. The sexually immoral, the idolaters, those who practice homosexuality, thieves, revilers, drunkards, basically every category of sinful people will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then key phrase, and such were some of you. Key, but you were washed and sanctified, justified in the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Notice he does not say you are, he says you were these things. Why? Because that's what God does to people with repentant hearts that come to the altar and come to the cross. He takes our sin and our unrighteousness and puts it on his sacrifice, his son, and he takes his son's righteousness and puts it on us. You were a man of unclean lips, Isaiah, but now you are clean. What happened? Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ paid his debt. The Bible tells us that those who are in the Old Testament are saved by Christ just like we are. They're looking towards Christ in so much as Jesus is revealed. They're putting their faith in God's provision. Just like people in the New Testament era that includes us, we look back towards the cross to what Christ has already done for our sakes. But the point is, is that Jesus paid the debt of our sins. And Christians, I know that we believe that. We would not be in this room if we didn't. But do you really believe it? Are you putting your full weight down in the reality that the God whose glory fills the earth and whose holiness blinds angels looks upon you as those who are secure in the Lord Jesus Christ with a fatherly affection? Have you put your full weight down in that? Not just a tippy toe, but are you swimming in that truth? I think one of the things that keeps us from going out into the world as God's missional people is that we have a hard time believing that. I have a hard time believing that. This applies to me? God loves me that way? But friends, what what unleashes us for God's glory in a starving world is that we believe the good news pronouncement that he gives us. Listen to me. As Christians... As those who are in Christ, you, you are exponentially loved by an exponentially holy God. You are a new creation. You were something, just like I was something, but now I'm new. We're not just patched up versions of our old self. We're something new. So whatever guilt and shame you have, just drop it. God commands you to. He says it's over, and he shouted through the cosmos that it's over when his son, Jesus Christ, said it is finished on the cross. Whatever shame you got, whatever guilt you got, he launched into the depths of the sea. It is not me saying that. It is God saying it to you. This is not fiction. This is the deepest reality of your existence now in the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, do you know, do you know the delight of being delighted in by God. He does, he's not just tolerating you. Do you know the joy of being enjoyed by 
God. You've got to pull your full weight into that. That you are accepted, that you are forgiven, that you are cherished, and that you are loved with an eternal love. And when you pull your full weight into that, you just sink in it. You start to sing. You're no longer saying, woe is me. You're singing, my sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Sing, church. And the next time the evil one comes knocking on the door of your heart, humiliating you, making you remember those past sins, trying to condemn you, with holy defiance, you tell him to go march back to hell. Because in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are more than a conqueror. And God wants you to know this just like he wanted Isaiah to know it. Why? Because he knows what us as little Christs empowered by the Holy Spirit are capable of. He wants to unleash you, church, out into this world that is starving for people who know Jesus. Which leads us to our last and very quick point. On that day, Isaiah saw the Lord on mission. Verse 8. John Stott, one of my favorite scholars, said um, that God is a missionary God. As soon as uh, humanity fell in sin, he went on mission. He sent Abram, he sent Moses, he sent Jesus, and in Jesus, he sends us. Isaiah understood that. Isaiah saw God for who he really is. He, he saw the holy and majestic God. He saw a God who was sovereign over all things and a God who loved him. And now he was transformed into a man who would do anything for God. And he's basically saying, are you kidding me? <laughs> the God who thought up the universe, who is sustaining the universe, who is holy that angels can't even look at, but hasn't condemned me, but, but has saved me and loves me and he's with me and he's told me that I get to participate in what he's doing? Are you kidding me? Of course I'm going. Just like Paul, he became a debtor to grace. He became obligated by the gospel to share the gospel with other people. So he says, here I am, O Lord, send me. Now it's really, cool. <laughs> it's really funny, actually. God told him to hold his horses. He said, listen, before you get all cavalier, let me give you the job description. He goes, okay, what's the job description? And this is what God tells Isaiah. He says, hey, I'm, so, I'm thankful. I'm, I'm glad. I, bless you that you're going to go share the good news out there. But no one's going to listen to you, Isaiah. People are going to hate you. And then Isaiah says, okay, how long is that going to take place? You know what God says? He says, oh, until the land is laying in waste. But the holy seed will be a stump. And so this is what God is saying. He's saying, Isaiah, I'm going to send you, okay? There will be fruit. The Redeemer is coming. The church is coming. It's going to, be, it's going to blow your mind, but you're not going to see it. It's going to happen long after you're dead. Do you trust me? And Isaiah says, of course I trust you. Here I am. Send me. Brothers and sisters, we're not Isaiah. We're not 
these missionaries that books have been written about, but every single one of us are, are called to go someplace. We're, we're called to go across the room, across the street, across town, to bring the gospel to bear and to make the gospel known. What in the world will compel us to do such a thing? Even when the Lord says, you're not going to see any fruit. It's when we have a high and right view of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who is on the throne, the one who is beautiful in all of his majesty and holy, yet loves us, doesn't condemn us, but saves us from our sins. And oh, by the way, the one who has the entire world in his hands, who's working all things out for the good of those who love him. And when we have that view, of course, we're going to be compelled to go. There might be challenges, but when we see that Christ and know him and know that he's with us and for us, we will have the courage of Paul who says in Romans 8, if he is for me, I don't care what's against me. Here I am, send me. That is my prayer, church, for me, for my family, for you, that we would see Christ high and lifted up for who he is and be changed. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we once were a people of unclean lips amidst a land of people with unclean lips, but in your grace you have invaded our hearts. You've invaded our lives and you have made us new. So Father, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that, that you would help us to see your son high and lifted up and that you would compel us to go and tell the good news about our great God to others. We pray in your blessed name. Amen.